0: everyone, this is the 50th episode, we are turning 50. On the 14th of April, back in 2018, we launched our first episode of Swim.Rock's podcast. And for over two years, we have been talking to people from all areas of swimming. Allowing them to share their ideas, information and inspiration to our audience, the swimming community who stays dry. This includes our coaches, parents, technical officials, admins volunteers, or whoever in this swimming world who want to see swimmers succeed. So in this 50th episode, we wanted to celebrate a milestone by looking back at just some of our best bits from our first 49 episodes. We start off with one of our first episodes that we recorded, and it was with one of Australia's top technical officials, Sherry Smith. In this episode, she talked about her experiences as a technical official on the international stage. And one thing that caught our attention was her story of being selected for the 2018 Com Games and having to DQ a number one seed.
1: And then once it kind of sunk in and I actually physically saw the roster, I then that's when I decided, well, you know what? They've chosen you and you are going to do the best damn job that you can possibly do. And that's what I did. I went over my rules I learned my stuff relearned my stuff I practiced I honed my whistle blowing everything so I thought you know what if they're going to put you up I'm going to do this well I'm going to hopefully do my country proud so it was but it was a very surreal six months I've been accused of sleeping with my rule book under my pillow (laughs) so that's nothing new but it's just like you it's One of my favourite sayings, been is like, use it or lose it. So if you're not doing these things all the time and you're not being challenged every time you go out on pool deck by things that crop up and you you can get very um, complacent, you can become very like, oh, yeah, I know what I'm doing, yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got to be, when you're on the world stage, you have to be on your game.
2: Now you were challenged, Uh in one of your events, the 50 freestyle, the favourite to win the gold medal, um, you had to disqualify. Yes. Can you talk a bit about that?
1: Yes, I can actually, a lot of people want to talk about that, but I can honestly tell you it was probably one of the easiest disqualifications that I've made, purely for the fact that it was a start before the starting signal. Now, as a lot of people out there that might listen to this podcast are aware, a start before the starting signal has to be, unlike a lot of the uh, ruling fractions that come to you as a referee, have to be witnessed by both yourself as the referee and as the starter. So you have to agree that, yes, the swimmer in heat whatever, lane whatever, has started before the starting signal. Now, I was extremely fortunate to work with what I class is one of the best starters in the world and i say that with all sincerity erin collis from queensland who is now on her third fina uh, run as a starter and she was my referee for the men's at the commonwealth games and i have to say here just to qualify this that when you officiate as a referee at this level or at a very high level The swimmers, when they get on the blocks and the command is given to take your marks, the swimmers go down and they are like statues. They're like rocks. So any movement that is seen or or done by the swimmers stands out, like it's huge. It's like you're looking at them through a magnifying glass. So after the start of Ben Proud from England's race, which was Heat 7, the top, the top heat, and he was in lane four. So obviously you've got to know that he's the the one to beat. Um, There was a movement at the start which both Erin and myself saw. So once this race had started, I stepped back and I just looked at Erin and she thought very deeply for a moment and she just turned to me and said, lane four. And I just said, well, please write it up because we had both witnessed that movement. Now, the rule clearly states that, at the command of state, uh, take your marks. Stationary means no apparent movement. And there was, so whether it be, and here I like to just go back a little bit into heat two, I think it was, of that same event, which was event six, the 50 metre butterfly. A swimmer from the Seychelles was in lane, I think it was six or three, I'm not sure one of the, just on the outside of the middle lanes. He started before the starting signal. Erin and I stood back, same thing, lane three, started before the starting signal. He went out. So how can you then look at heat six or seven and go, oh, no, this is who it is. We can't do this. You can't. You have to officiate equally and fairly and to the rules, and that's what we did. So we put Ben Proud out of the 50-metre butterfly who I believe had with that swim, which did not stand, broke his existing Commonwealth record for that event. So I've got to be honest, you know, you don't look and go, oh, this has been proud from England. He's this, he's that, is the other. You just go, this is heat so-and-so lane four. He started before the starting signal. And he went out the same way as the swimmer from the Seychelles did. So from a referee's point of view, I did my job. In both
0: heaps. Sticking with international games, we fast forward to a more recent episode with Woy Woi head coach Graham Carroll. We discussed how to keep young adults in the sport and how to make a connection with an athlete. We also discussed his coaching career and one standout was Graham's story of how he joined the Bolivian Olympic team on the eve of the Sydney 2000 Olympic Games. know that you went to the Olympics. You went to Sydney 2000 for Bolivia, was it?
3: Yeah, I was lucky enough to be with Bolivia. Uh, again, paid a fortune there. Um, a friend went away to Bolivia with the Australian indoor soccer team and he came back and said, I've been contacted by the Bolivian um, government. They want someone to look after their swimmers when they come to Sydney three weeks out from the Olympics just to train them and then their coach will join them um, two days before the Olympics started. And I said, look, happy to do that. Uh, so we housed them in a, in a rent house for them, and we got the Bolivian community involved uh, from the area, and they supported them with food. Uh, every day they would make meals for them. They came and trained with our program. Um, there were two athletes. One was a backstroker, and the other one was a breaststroke girl. It was actually her fourth Olympics. She'd been going to the Olympics since she was 12. She was now 25, 26. And um, through, the, through that course of training with our programs, uh, the boy, Marcello, uh, was a backstroker. He went from a 10500 backstroke of 59. And um, he was just over the moon and stoked with that at the Olympics. And Katharina went from a one two two hundred breaststroker uh, to a one fourteen three, And, uh, again, she was just unbelievably ec- ecstatic. And, and I think one of the beauties of the, uh, that experience was... Um, They had never trained in a 50-metre pool. They'd only swum in 25-metre pools, and to train in a 50-metre pool for two to three weeks was fantastic. Now, on the day of the Olympic Games, um, they found out their coach couldn't arrive, so they said to me, do you want to be at the Olympics with us on our team? And I was over the moon, but I I sought out Australian Swimming's opinion, and Alan Thompson said to me, you get the opportunity, mate, go. We're not holding you. Mm. And uh, so... That afternoon, I went over to the um, Olympic village with the uh, chef de Michon from Bolivia, and we went through the process of being a member of the Bolivian sporting team for the Olympic Games.
0: From Olympic coaches to Olympic athletes, uh, or rather their parents, we spoke to mother of Australia's sprint sister duo, Jenny Campbell, mother of Kate and Bronte. Here's a small part of that interview with Jenny as she shares her experiences as a swimming parent of two world superstars.
2: So the world knows you as the mother of, of Bronte and Kate. And, um, you know, many of our listeners are, are parents and therefore you know understand that when you have kids, your identity does get linked to their kids to, to a certain extent, particularly those of us who've sort of, um, prioritise childcare over perhaps our professional careers but, but how do you feel about having that as an identity?
4: Um, yeah, it's interesting. Um, like you say, I think it doesn't matter who your children are you will be linked to them in various ways um, and I guess provided my children are good people then I'm really happy to be linked with them. <laughs> So it's less the swimming but more who they are that's important to me and um, I know that I have been asked in the past sometimes tongue-in-cheek sometimes not so tongue-in-cheek is how do you bring up an Olympic athlete and I go well actually you don't bring up an Olympic athlete you bring up a good person and if they happen to become an Olympic athlete well then that's brilliant Um, and I guess that's um that's where I would prefer my identity to life it's going to be linked with my kids rather than their achievement in the swimming pool
2: now we've talked about your two fastest swimmers as sort of together but they're in direct competition against each other how do you emotionally support their individual achievements when when they're in that competitive dynamic
4: Yeah, it's actually, that is probably one of the most difficult things, and it's probably the thing I admire them for the most, is that they've managed to maintain their friendship as sisters, despite being direct competitors, and I think that's a really, really tough one to do. I often call myself psycho mum, because you've got such mixed emotions at the end of a race, and it's not about who's come first and who's come second. It's about one being happy with their swim and one being unhappy with their swim. If they came third and fourth or fifth and sixth in a race, but they were both happy with what they'd achieved, that's fine. Um, But for example, Bronte beating Kate um, in the 100 free at COM games, I mean, obviously it was wonderful for Bronte and she was thrilled and excited. But we knew that Kate was disappointed with her swim. And unfortunately, the happiest you can feel is your saddest emotion at that moment. So it is really hard to celebrate with the one who's celebrating when you've got one who's not celebrating, if that makes any sense.
2: Well, Jenny, we've been talking for about 25 minutes and I'm conscious you've got a lot you've got to get on with. So if I may, I'd like to change gear a bit now and just move into our quick fire round of questions to uh, to close off with. So is, is that good for you? Sure. Okay, we've got, we've got five questions. Uh, number one, what's been the most useful piece of advice or equipment that you've had as a swimming parent? My car? <laughs> Fantastic. Nobody's ever said that before, but it's it's just completely obvious, isn't it?
4: <laughs> I can't think of anything else.
2: <laughs> Question two. If you were to officiate at a New South Wales meet, which of course you wouldn't, the Lucky Door prize is a bottle of wine or box of chocolates. Are you wine or chocolates?
4: Chocolate, any day. What sort? Lint.
2: Uh, ah, <laughs> oh, very exclusive. Yeah. <laughs> question three or,
4: or else no i do have another or else to that one old gold i keep bars of old gold dark chocolate and almond in my cupboard and i eat four pieces on my way to swimming at five o'clock in the morning if i go swimming early
2: oh i see so that's your breakfast pre-swimming is it yeah yeah is that the yeah. secret of your success uh, i must be okay we'll keep that secret for later <laughs>
0: We now go to the top of Australian swimming, and go back to when Ben spoke to CEO of Swimming Australia, Lee Russell. The first time. Lee is one of our few guests we've had on more than once, and on this occasion, Ben asked her about her career highlights, which include being an author and working at several other sporting organisations. Here's a little bit from when Lee was talking about high performance and their role as Swimming Australia. Australia.
2: So you've been on your listening tour, you've been here 10 months, you're working with many stakeholders, including Sport Australia. Do you have a sense yet about what's going to be sort of business as usual, just keep going steady as she goes versus what's what's changing, what's going to be different?
5: Uh, I think in terms of, it's an interesting thing because high performance is probably you're steady as she goes, but having said that, We always need to be looking for the next, uh, I guess, the next competitive advantage over our other nations and and so on. So, you know, from here to Tokyo, it is steady as she goes. Uh, Jaco and the team really uh, know and understand, and have you know very significant plans uh, that have been in place for quite a while. So, in terms of that part, that's really you know we've got a direction and we're we're moving in that direction um, very steadily. And of course, while it sounds like uh, Tokyo 2020 is a long way away, um, having just entered 2019, that time in a high performance uh, way is, is very, very short. So it matters what we do from here, day to day, and all of the, the thousands of uh, one percenters that, that make up this thing called high performance. So it, it definitely steady as she goes in terms of, of that approach. But then also, you know, uh, on the other side of, I guess, our, our quantum of operations, everything is changing. Sport Australia is changing their, their investment model, um, corporate partners, uh, you know, uh, expectations are constantly uh, increasing. So I think uh, it's, it's probably a, a game of... Um, Work on what we need to work on in terms of change, but also keeping our eye on the things that need to really be rock solid, so that we can we can give ourselves the best possible chance of performing uh, at the Olympics.
2: Something else you mentioned a couple of minutes ago—a um, fascinating statement. You said um, the thousands of one percenters that make up a competitive advantage. Or I think you said something like that. Can you can you just mm, unpack mm. that statement? The thousands thousands of one percenters.
5: Um, I, I'm of the view that high performance isn't your shiny, um, objects, you know, that people may think it is, it is, is. it is all the things that are happening, um, that make up the sum of, of what we call high performance. So, you know, for our athletes in particular, it's, it's how, it's not how they train. Um, sorry, it's not only how they train, it's how they live. It's how they think it's, it's what's going on above the shoulders. Um, and then it's how, you know, we uh, grow these people um, in and out of the pool. Um, it's, it's all of the systems and structures and, and processes that you put in place um, brick by brick, basically, that, that make up, uh, you, you know, the totality of, of, of a high-performance environment. It's it's attitudes, mindsets, um you know who you employ uh, what their what their skills are like, what their capacity is, um, and how they get the best out of people as well and 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 so I think it's 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 decision by decision uh, rather than leaving it to luck or to chance and and so I, I like to think about it is the time, it is a sum of all parts um, you, you know and and we need to be looking at all of those parts to make sure that Uh, things are working and if they're not working, why? And, uh, you know, I love to ask the shoulds. What Should we be doing this? And and if not, why not? And, um, you know, those probing questions to continue to ask um, yourself and and people in that high-performance environment because the one thing that, um, you know, I think really kills a kills a high performance performance environment is resting on your laurels and and not having the mindset of continuous improvement and uh you know or every person needs to be um aiming for the same goal and uh you know i've seen it work many times in different sports and i've seen it fail many times in different sports because of the lack of attention that is paid to the things that perhaps people don't normally see outside of that environment but um certainly you know the 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 summer part for me is, is very, very important.
0: Now we've heard a lot about our Australian-based guests, so let's all book a ticket, go to the airport and fly over to where our glorious founder, Ben Ramson, is from, England. He spoke to an outstanding lady who fell in love with swimming later on in her life, so much that she decided to swim the English Channel. Here's Ben talking to Sally Gobel.
2: She has a particular enjoyment of outdoor swims, including rivers, oceans and, as we shall hear, icy environments. She swam the English Channel in July 2006. And she writes for the Guardian newspaper swimming blog and has a medium blog called Postcards from the Pool. Well, that's my introduction of Sally, but I was really keen to hear how she would describe herself
6: a good way of describing myself is that not as your typical swimmer and I kind of think this is a kind of story I kind of say to a lot of people I'm kind of extremely short I'm like uh, five foot tall which I guess in Australian money is about you know one meter forty centimeters or something um so I'm really short I'm a middle-aged woman I'm quite round I don't look anything like Michael Phelps um and i live in right slap bang in the middle of central london in the uk and i've got a really busy hectic job and i swim to keep myself sane
2: you talk about living in central london and this rather old pool rather an old nasty pool i mean most of our listeners are in australia can can you tell us a bit about what the uk swimming culture is and the sort of character of the pools particularly in a in a major city like london
6: Yeah, so um, four years ago, I I turned 50, and I decided for my 50th birthday to um, swim for 50 days in 50 different swimming pools, swim a mile a day for 50 days in 50 different swimming pools in central London, and I kind of set myself this goal that they would only be public pools. Um, so i wouldn 't go to any kind of fancy hotel pools or kind of private gyms or anything. I would find all the all the pools I could and swim for a day uh, a day a day a, a pool a day for fifty days and It was absolutely perfectly possible too with a bit of like kind of logistical planning and um and it was like an amazing experience. I like was kind of driving around in my like little car every day before and after work finding a different to pool and um and people often say to me, "Which is your favourite? Which is your favourite pool?" And you know they're all completely different. I say it's like having children. You know, you lo- you love them all for different reasons. And so, you know, there are kind of very beautiful old marble-lined Victorian pools with balconies and vaulted ceilings that are really strange lengths because. You know some of the British swimming pools were built when you know they were built to be 50, 50 yards or which ends up being you know 36 meters um or you know 25 yards which is 20 meters or something so you have all these kind of strange beautiful old swimming pools with different which are strange, strange and old distances and then you have you know municipal swimming pools which are in sheds which are 25 meters long and have got kind of six lanes we have lots of indoor 25 meter pools um and then we have some beautiful 50 meter pools which are comp- competition pools like um in crystal palace which was built in the um 1970s for the commonwealth games and and of course we have lots and lots of beautiful outdoor swimming pools which is amazing i mean i know in australia like practically every person apparently has a 50 50 meter pool in their backyard. Um, But in London, we have lots and lots of 50 meter pools as well. And we have a, a 90 meter long outdoor swimming pool and a 60 meter long outdoor swimming pool. And they're both unheated. They're both open all year round. So there's kind of a thriving swimming culture in, in central London, I would say.
0: Let's hop out of the water for a tad and take a look behind the new technologies that are surfacing in the world of swimming. When trying to run a swim meet like Club Night, it may be very difficult for a club who do not have the resources to fund a high-tech timing system. Long behold, a saviour for those who are troubled, and his name is William Ferguson. He invented a timing system called Wireless Timing, with a Y after the W, which is very, very inventive, which uses mobile phones to run Club Night. Here's when Ben chatted to Will about his new invention.
7: The the idea really germinated back in about 2013. That's when we did the prototype. Um, and then, you know, we spent uh, about a year and a half um, uh, iterating over that until I was really, really comfortable and we had enough pressure from surrounding clubs. And 2015 is when we incorporated and started selling.
2: Very good. So you're about five or six years old now.
7: Yeah, yeah, that's about
2: right. Very good, very good. So, I'd like really for us to sort of walk through everything that it does, and perhaps the way into that is—is is perhaps you could explain who is it for, and what sort of events is it designed for?
7: So, it's targeted at the either the amateur swim, or for a swim club or for a school, um, depending upon uh, the way that you know either of those are organised. But the goal is to make uh, a swim meet. An effortless function. Effortless. So that's
2: what, well, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm I'm excited. That's 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 a fantastic aspiration. I keep going. It, it, sorry.
7: It, for from from current manual timing, uh, it, it feels almost effortless at the end. Okay, there's some effort required, um, but when I get roped into uh, going down to the swim club and helping out now, I used to hate sitting there um, as chief recorder, madly, you know, entering the times and everything like that uh, on a during a meet. Now I love it, it's great. You know, I sit there and I, I click, you know, a button to start, you know, to marshal the race and I click a button to finalize the race and the rest of the time I spin, you know, I actually watch the swimming. It's a novel thing, you know, I, I get time to do that. Um, and likewise with the timekeepers, they're not stressed about you know the start of the race or anything like that. The clock starts automatically. They've just got to you know be there for the end of the race, and um, so it takes the heat off and lets the parents start to enjoy the meet again.
2: That's amazing. So just take us through then before the, the club night starts. How how are entries um, into events managed?
7: So, we've drawn uh, a line around what wireless timing will do. Um, and so, we're focused solely on the timing aspect of it. Um, most clubs will already be running a meat management system. Um, in Australia, that's typically uh, the high tech's meat manager, um, though there are you know, a few others out there. And what we've done is to uh, devise uh, an interface between uh, wireless timing and the meat managers so that We can talk to any meet manager, so at the start of a, you know, prior to a a meet, all of the entries will be entered into the meet manager as per normal. It'll be seeded. You know, you run out whatever reports that you want to run out for your marshalling and so on. And then when you're ready to start the meet, uh, you start up wireless timing, um, uh, select the meet from there. Uh, It imports all of the entries across from the meet manager. So you've got all of your races, all of the seeding, everything like that. Uh, and then you choose the far first race for the night um, and then click marshal. at which point um, the, all of the timekeepers and the starter and the display will all light up and indicate um, which race is currently uh, marshalled and register rerun. You'll see all the competitors' names there and which points over to the starter. Um, um, and on the starter's uh, starting pistol that we provide, you'll see all the details about what the race is. Um, They'll know that it's ready to start because it'll vibrate uh, in their hand to let, you know, give them an alert. Um, They start the race by pressing, um, uh, you know, firing the starting pistol, which will, about 100 decibel um, uh, noise out the front of that and a nice big um, uh, bright blue flash. Uh, All the clocks will start, kids will jump in the pool madly dashed you know um, uh, down to the end and uh, as they get there the timekeepers will use the volume rockers on the phones in order to um, uh, stop the clock for their lane if there's two timekeepers on a lane it'll average them if there's three it'll midpoint them you know following all standard FINA rules and uh, as the times uh, uh, you know as the clocks are stopped they'll all automatically um, uh, get sent across to the system uh, and, uh, up to the display. So you'll immediately see all the results. As soon as the kid hits the end of the pool, you see the results up on the display, um, once the referee is happy, um, with the race results and blows all clear, the recorder clicks on the finalize button that pushes all the results straight across to meet manager so that they're available there to be pushed up to meet mobile or, um, you know, print out reports or whatever. And then the recorder selects the next race, clicks Marshall, and you start all over again.
2: Wow. As easy as. (laughs) It
7: is. From from a recorder's point of view, it's it's an absolute bliss.
0: We're going to stick with swimming clubs for now and talk to someone who I have known since the day I was born. And I'm not saying that figuratively. It is my mum, Michelle. Mum was a part of swim committees for close to 10 years and she shared the small things that change a club into a family.
8: i've been to adelaide zoo three times fantastic zoo (laughs) highly recommend it for people that want to go there
0: Um. you go we can get adelaide zoo yeah so yeah so majority of that time uh we were at mingara aquatic swim club and especially throughout my time when i was at high school um we were there for six seven years nearly nearly that long and you played a vital role in keeping that club thriving you know whether it be on the committee or helping out as a parent or something like that what were your biggest achievements uh both as an individual and um on the committee Mm. as well
8: okay so i think i think what we tried to do as a committee is we tried to run club in a fun way so I remember like I would always be in marshalling because I've got a loud voice that projects apparently. So I I, I got stuck with that job.
0: (laughs) I do know that at 4am in the morning.
8: (laughs) But I think, you know, for me doing marshalling, I enabled the kids to feel a little bit part of being there. Like I would get the kids to help. You know, call up the next event, or and they'd all line up each week. and It'd be Michelle. Can I call up? You know, the yeah. grade A's and grade yeah. B's and things, and and you know, and you. We worked on making club a fun night. We helped those kids that were anxious. Like you know, there was a few little kids that parents would come up and go, oh, Michelle. You know, can you can you hold their hand until they get into the water? Yeah. And yep, not a problem. So I think as a committee. At the time, when, we, when I was there, we we made sure that the the people in the club were happy. Yeah. And we we got a good bonding with them. Yeah. So I think, like, even though we may have, I think we, we changed club night program to be more of a fun night. That was under um, Andrew Jones did that, um, which is a good way. Instead of A grade, B grade, C grade, you yeah. just went into times and things like that. Yeah. Um, so we, we did do that. Like we, we put, bought in a uniform, which, you know, everyone loved and was a new uniform for the club, um, with new swim caps. We, you know, we did a lot of, we did a lot of things. Um, but I think, you know, the biggest part was the fact that I can remember everyone being happy with what we were doing and the way we approached them. Like even for the fact that we used to run, um, like breakfast So every time it was state or country
0: yeah you
8: know I'd be up making pancake mix the night before till 10 o'clock the night before yeah, yeah. storing it in old bottles that I'd kept
3: yeah
8: turning up to the pool at 6am you yeah. know like I'd drop you off I'd come home get all the gear pack it all out yeah and, you know, we'd cook pancakes for everyone. It just wasn't for yeah. the swimmers. We'd say, oh, you know, we're celebrating the kids going yeah. to country or we're celebrating the kids going to, sw- uh, to state yeah. or to nationals. I was
0: going to say, all nutritionists right now are pulling their hair out. <laughs>
8: hey, we had fruit platters oh, stra- as well. We, we had strawberries on, and bananas. Yeah, yeah. Yep. maple syrup. D- with- and the cream. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, we involved every kid that was there. Yeah. So every kid that was there that morning, yeah. it didn't matter if they were only five. You yeah. know, they were there lining up to get a pancake and maple syrup and whatever yeah. and an orange juice. You yeah. know, to to do that. And I think that was probably as a committee, we gave back. Yeah. To everyone, not yeah. just our top swimmers. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So I mean, I I was awarded the um Lewandowski Award, which was for like an achievement for um for giving back to people. Yeah. And
0: and it's basically the the. The club person of the year in, in a way, Yeah, it?
8: Yeah. yeah. So it was for, it's been for over... I think it's been for over a couple of years. You had to yeah. be with the club a couple of years and yeah. you had to give back to the club continually. So yeah. I gave that. But I think to date, my biggest personal achievement was actually um, after being team manager for three years actually getting bradley woodward to have a conversation with me i'm sure he used to look at me and think this woman is absolutely crazy and i'm not talking to her but by the third year i was team manager my last year yeah brad and i actually had a conversation which didn't involve me going brad are you okay (laughs) yep brad do you need a drink do you want me to get you anything no i'm okay that was about it good luck brad thank you
0: While we're on the topic of swim clubs, we take a look back to the time when Ben chatted to Matt Patterson from Manly Swim Club, who claimed to be one of the oldest swim clubs in Australia. 114 years they have been active and Matt was on the show at the start of their 113th season. Here's a little bit of their history.
2: Can you tell us a bit about the history of Manly Swimming Club? Because I think uh, it goes back quite a long time.
9: Yes, Manly Swimming Club was established back in 1905 so we're into our 113th season i think that places us at probably maybe one of the one of the oldest clubs in the state if not the country i'm not i know that the manly ladies are also of a similar age but i'm not sure about any other clubs throughout the state in the country and the club has a very very rich history i mean i'll throw throwing names at you like john devitt um and also andrew boyd charlton um, you know, to to go back into that golden era of swimming, uh, Frank O'Neill, uh, all these guys, uh, all all competed and were members of the Manly Swimming Club, and then we go into sort of more recent history where we had the likes of Book Hansen, uh, we also had Elka Graham or Elka Whalen as she's is, is known now, who all started their craft at Manly, so there, you know, and that's just a, a snapshot uh, with things like that. And I was actually speaking with John Devitt one day, and uh, he also told me that Sir Roden Cutler, who was a World War II, um, yeah, World War Two veteran, and also I think the one of the longest-serving um, Governor, New South Wales governors, I think it was, um, in longest-serving, he also was a member of the swimming club. Um, and I mean, most of us probably only. You know the m7 and m4 junction there where it's got the it says the cutler interchange you just see it as a name but i thought oh, i better do some reading onto him and he was quite an accomplished swimmer um but he also he got um i think the victoria cross for bravery in relation to he was doing what he was doing in world war ii was trying to run a communications line and he got he was shot and he ended up losing his leg because of it Um, but he laid there for 26 hours until he was rescued and then was brought and then was brought back. So, you know, it's such an interesting history. Um, you know, for people that are high-profile swimmers, but not only you've got sort of high-profile people in the community that um, that have done things. And there's also uh, um, you know a book that John Devitt co-wrote in relation to Cecil Healy, who was a medalist in the Stockholm Olympic Games, and he is the only gold medalist uh, that was killed during the war. The only Olympic gold medalist. So all these, all these things, and then these, these are the things that I've just learned over the years. And there's so much more history that you know, digging around, we could, we could probably find out. But it's just been really interesting listening to those types of people and the stories that they've got to say.
2: Wow, that's absolutely fascinating! One hundred and thirteenth that's just incredible. I yeah. think we could probably talk about this all day, but we better not. Um, <laughs> you've, you've talked about people; just tell us a bit about facilities, because I guess—I guess, um, guess one hundred and thirteen years ago, you didn't have a sort of fifty-meter uh, chlorinated um, Olympic uh, Olympic pool at your disposal.
9: No, that's true, and and the the origins of of the club were at the Manly Baths, which uh, which were. Adjacent to, for people that are familiar with the Manly area, adjacent to the Manly Skiff Club, which is a lovely place to go and have a meal and a drink, um, but that's where the Manly Baths were, and you know, that was where the where the club's origins were. Um, there's some real, there's is some excellent photos of uh, of Boy Charlton at that venue and a packed grandstands watching him swim uh, 1500 metres, and I think he even might have. Saw, I, I can't be a hundred percent sure, but he may have even set world records in that pool. But then, in 1976, the Manly Pool, as it is now, um, opened, and the, the then the then council um, offered the, there was the three clubs being ourselves, the Manly Ladies, and also the Manly Diggers, uh, to to come and use the new the new facility, uh, and that facility well that was then the outdoor facility and you know we've been there every saturday morning during the summer months ever since that time has opened Uh, and then in recent times we've seen the opening of the of the new facility which they built on the on the site which has given us now an eight lane indoor 25 meter pool Um, there's a a, a very good gym there spas saunas so all that uh, has come along um, in in recent times so it's now quite a nice, uh, you know, well-appointed facility that we've got at Manly.
2: Now, I'm, my mind boggles at the thought of a massive crowd watching a 1,500-metre race. Um, so it sounds like times in swimming have changed, um, but, um, but I guess that's an aside for, for another day.
0: Every little detail matters when you're trying to succeed as a competitive swimmer. The next three segments of this episode is three guests we've had on the show that come from three different resources a swimmer can use. First up, we start with Raquel Beal, who is a nutritionist, who shared with us how she tests her recipes, as well as giving Ben a few handy tips along the way.
6: So I have a whole book of, you know, recipes that are tried and tested through you know, with all the swimmers, they're my guinea pigs. So I take down, you know, a, a tray of something and get them to test it out and give me a, a thumbs up or down or, you know, their comments. And then they get to put that into, you know, into their daily habits as well.
2: Now, maybe I could ask you a bonus question. Um, I'm, a, I'm a technical official um, at a lot of swimming championships. And... Um, a lot of the food that, that we get given, uh, I find, is really not very good. I mean, all, I'm not criticising the organisers because they do a great job just to, just to provide anything. But yeah, particularly okay. when you're on pool deck uh, all day or all day for several days in succession, um, obviously we're not competing, but we still need to be alert and looking after ourselves and making sure that things are happening properly. Would, would you have any brief advice for, for people like me? <laughs>
6: You might, you you probably need to graze, would you, Ben? Because you're, it's a pretty um, hectic place down there
2: on Pool Deck. Hectic and hot is how I'd put it. Yes.
6: (laughs) So hydration, Ben. (laughs) So don't don't be having those cans of soft drink that they supply you. And I would just I would keep some nuts and fruit in your pocket, as well.
2: Nuts and seeds. Nut seed, and hydration. Thank you. I shall try that.
0: Next up is Cameron Gledhill. Cam is the head swim coach at Warringah Aquatic and also has a master's degree of clinical psychology. He spoke about the way a coach can improve the mindset of an athlete and how parents can motivate their child in a beneficial way.
10: I guess the other aspect of it is your interaction with an athlete, um... Now, something that I think probably, probably a lot of coaches do naturally without realising it is something called scheduling of reinforcement um, and whole different ways of doing it. And every time someone does something good, telling them that it was good, or uh, which is um, fixed ratio, for example. Um, I, I actually did a study at uni on poker machines and why they're so addictive and their scheduling of reinforcement is actually uh, called random ratio. So you know that um, if you press the button one more time, then um, you you could be a winner on the next time, right? But you know it's got to happen sometime in the next um, 100 spins, right? But you don't know when it's coming. Could be the next one, could be the 99. Um, And you, you can use that to uh, develop intrinsic motivation within your athletes. Athletes thrive on, on uh, positive feedback, um, and they might not get it every single time that they do something well, but uh, when you do give that positive feedback, it means so much more if it's, uh, I, I guess it's it's scheduled to uh, be a little bit more random and, and it's not gonna happen every time, but when they do receive it, um, uh, it's a it's a real boost and that's that intrinsic motivation rather than uh, an external reward um, you get a um five dollars for every pb you get actually ends up diminishing motivation down the track for for an athlete um, if that reward doesn't get bigger and bigger every time a parent might end up having to give their kid an iphone every time they do a pb and that's not
2: sustainable um give your kid an iphone every time they do a pb that sounds an expensive swimming career
0: (laughs) lastly when a swimmer gets to an age where they want to wear a technical suit for the first time how do they go about it ben asked alex perry to give us an insight on what to look for when you're buying your first suit
2: My wife said to me, uh, oh, "By the way, we're going to invest in a swimsuit." Yeah. With the uh, the emphasis on the word invest. Yeah. <laughs> my eyes rolled when I heard heard how much they they are, and yep. um, especially when they don't. I understand they don't last as long as as, as more normal sort of go down the beach yeah, swimsuits. Guns, yep. for, for a sort of newbie out there, can you explain a bit about why you would ever invest in in a racing suit? Yeah. Okay.
11: So um, first of all, the newbie. I, the, the, for, the, for the newbie sorry i would suggest not looking anywhere sort of near the top end of the market at all because it's not necessary at all i mean unless you want to look like your hero you know wearing exactly the same thing that's possibly the only reason why you would get it but in terms of performance you're not going to get what the suit's designed for um it's designed like the top level ones are designed for to more mature athletes with much more muscle development um so they're designed to fit really tight whereas for you know the entry-level suits they're much softer compression much easier to get on which is a big thing when you're first getting into a race suit is you know a lot of kids find them hard to get on um so just trying to get a suit that fits well is comfortable um and yeah ultimately the kid feels fast in it because yes there's a science behind racing suits and they do you know technically give you shades of a second off your time and you know, there's been studies and all this kind of stuff to prove it but if you feel fast in a suit it's going to make a hell of a lot of difference so um yeah it's a lot it's a lot of mental behind it as well so
2: oh i see so yeah. a lot of it is the sort of mental impression it gives yeah
11: exactly and in terms of you know now nowadays with the suits there's a lot of color out there too and, and color and feel for the suit is a big thing because when you're standing behind the blocks you want to feel like a superstar and if you feel like you look like a superstar then you're going to swim to your full potential like for me i always had a bright orange suit for finals and you know whenever i'd put that on i know it's it's fast time um and yeah like it's it's just about the look as well now um because you do feel faster um so yeah there's there's a whole bunch of things i mean i can just recap quickly um just in a few dot points is you got the feel of the suit um you got the look which isn't obviously as important but it is you know to kids especially a big part of it um and then you've got the scientific side of things so it, it's kind of finding a happy medium between the three um and you don't have to go out and take out a bank loan for your first race suit there's yeah, entry-level ones that are going to do the job for what you need.
0: We have come to an end of our 50th episode, but before we go, we have to throw in the time where Ben's wife, Libby, accidentally walked into the shot when we were recording and waved hello to me.
2: Oh, Libby's just appearing. <laughs> <laughs> we're recording. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, I'm so sorry. And can you can you can you see you you appear briefly. Yeah, you come the... in and out, in
1: and
2: out, in and out. We should keep all that in, shouldn't we? Yeah. So now, so now the whole family's been in to, uh, to check out and find out who's on the screen. And yes, Locks in his backyard. Perhaps so I'll yeah, kick okay. off again.
0: Well, there you go. 50 episodes done and dusted. We raise the cricket bat to the crowd as we now set our eyes back on helping those who help our swimmers succeed. And who knows, maybe we'll be taking the helmet off when we get to 100. Thanks to all our listeners out there and those who have given us five stars on Apple Podcasts. We wouldn't be doing this if we didn't have an audience who were as engaging as you are. Thank you for listening to this episode and now we move on to episode 51. On behalf of Ben Ramsen and myself, stay safe, stay healthy and stay dry.